Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Theological Arsonist. I'm really, really excited to do today's episode. It has been some time since the last Theological Arsonist episode. I think, man, it has to be at least April, maybe, of this year was the last one. April or very early May, I can't even remember now. But it has been at least a couple months, and so it feels really good to be back with you guys, both those watching and those listening. And today's video, I I had been kind of thinking in my head how how and what should I um, talk about today. And with all that's been going on in the world, with Pride Month having just happened uh, this June, and then very climactically at the very end, you have the, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, I figured this is a great time to talk about the eschatological victory that we have in Jesus Christ and, and this hope that we have through him that all things on the earth, in heaven, in the cosmos will be in totality submitted underneath the foot of Jesus Christ. Um, and we're watching that play out slowly but surely. And I think for a lot of us, um, the month of June began as a very um, depressing month in many ways because we look and we see this radical depravity in the world, this radical rebellion to God. And to be completely honest, it can be extremely discouraging to see that, especially when you as a Christian uh, seek to speak truth and you begin to speak truth and you're immediately met with just this wave of hatred and rebellion towards God. Um, there's really no other way to describe it than demonic, right? There is this demonic force behind these movements moving them forward. And I, I for for a good chunk of June, um, I do remember feeling just this, this weight on my soul, this weight of heaviness, um, and the, the victory of the overturning of Roe v. Wade at the end of the month was as though God was looking down and just telling his faithful, um, I am in control. I am in control. And when I want to subdue an enemy, I will and I can subdue an enemy. And it's a reminder for me having a victory like that. Um, again, it's not, a, it's not a, a victory in the sense of being abortions done and over with. But it is a victory in the sense that reminds me that all things will be put in subjection to Jesus Christ in his time, right? In his time, not our time, not our timeline, but in the timeline that he has prescribed in his uh, infinite knowledge and determination. And so we as Christians, we have a role to play. We have a duty to uh, proclaim the gospel, to speak out against injustice and we need to do that with the knowledge um, and the confidence that Christ is going to accomplish what he says he's going to accomplish. But we need to also recognize that the evil that we see, the hatred we see towards the Christian faith, the rebellion we see, these are not setbacks, right? These are not, this is not somehow God's plan not working out. These are enemies that Christ is conquering. And sometimes, and I, I've stated this before in previous videos, and I need to continue to remind myself of this, especially in the climate of the Western culture. But one of the things we see is that Christ sometimes, and we see this in Romans 1, we see this in 2 Thessalonians 2, the way in which Christ subdues enemies is through the punishment of handing them over to depravity. And so we should never look at 
the rise of an evil within a nation such as the LGBTQ movement or abortion or things like that. We should never look at those things and assume that the rise in these things taking place is somehow evidence that Christ's rule is failing. We need to recognize that the rise in these things is in a very real sense judgment, right? We look at um, the bowls of wrath in Revelation, for example, and we see these martyrs crying out and saying, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood, right? And, and the response is very, very interesting. The response is not, um, you know what, good point, <laughs> and then pouring out a vengeance. No, God says, wait a little longer until the rest of the martyrs are killed, right? So in other words, the judgment of God is waiting and in a sense, we see in Revelation, dependent upon the slaughter and martyrdom of the faithful. And that seems very backwards, but what we do know for certain is that God's vengeance will always be in the favor of his people. And so one of the ways he does judge nations is through the martyrdom of the Christian. This is the greatest sanctification a Christian can undergo. There is no greater um, calling, no higher calling for a Christian than to lay down his life for Jesus Christ. And as a result of his laying down his life, he is rewarded with glory in the eternal kingdom. And his enemies now have the blood of him on their heads, as well as the blood of Christ. And so then this vengeance that God pours out becomes uh, as a direct correlation and result with the martyrdom of the believer. And so we need to recognize that abortion, LGBTQ, these things that are on the rise are a form of judgment. These are people being handed over to a debased mind and the blood of those whom they're harming, whether it be young children who they're leading astray with this gender ideology, or whether it be abortion, children who are murdered and slaughtered in the womb of their mothers. These are souls and these are people that God will enact vengeance on behalf of. And we can be confident that he is accomplishing that now and I truly believe that this overturning of Roe v. Wade was a reminder to us as Christians that Christ is on the throne and that we just need to keep our hope and our faith and our love and our charity all rooted where they belong, which is in Jesus Christ. Because it's easy. It's easy to look out at the world. It's easy to fall into this pattern of thinking that the things that we see with our eyes are the extent of all that is going on. And we forget the spiritual dimension, which is far more real, far more powerful, and far more in, inter, uh, interactive with the world, the physical world that we see. We have a tendency to slip into Gnosticism where we place such a divide between the spiritual and the physical that we, we fail to uh, look at the world and understand the world through su a supernatural lens. And so one of the things I've been... Uh, working on lately just within my own spiritual life is cultivating a true sense that the the spiritual world the supernatural is in no sense divorced from the physical and in fact the physical serves as a tangible pointer to the supernatural um, in, in many ways the world that we live in is a sacrament right the world is is this sign and what it signifies is the existence and the power and the might of its creator. And so 
the the sacramental nature of the Eucharist, the sacramental nature of baptism are like small, tangible means of grace where we see and experience the presence of God and the work of God. And we need to recognize that the world was created to function in the same way. It was created to function as this sacramental means by which we tangibly see and behold the creator. Um, let me get a drink of water here. So I don't start coughing all over my microphone. But anyways, getting into where I want to go with this episode. Not that what I just said isn't where I want to go with the episode, but to kind of flesh things out a little bit more. Um, in the book of Revelation, there's a chapter, chapter 19, that many people, I believe, misunderstand and, and, and misrepresent. And it's become quite a popular chapter to point to the second coming of Jesus Christ. But I would caution taking the approach of reading it and understanding it that way um, based upon a few key characteristics in the text that to me, um, John gives us an interpretive clue as to how we're to understand this just a few verses earlier. But I just want to read this text and I want to dig into its application for us right now as Christians living in the 21st century. Um, and also then just kind of go into the beauty and the truth of this historic optimism um, that Christ is conquering, he will continue to conquer, and he will not stop conquering until all enemies are subdued underneath his feet. So this is Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What an incredible passage. So many beautiful pictures and, and, and just expressions of who Christ is. Now, a lot of people... Traditionally, I grew up thinking this is a talking about the second coming. But what's interesting is something I never picked up on before that's very interesting. He says, then I saw heaven open and behold, a white horse. So the, the picture here is not behold, heaven is open and Christ is descending from heaven with a shout. Right? That there, there's a, it's a very different image here. In Paul, we get this picture of the second coming of Christ with heaven not being opened up, but with the dead in Christ rising and Christ descending with a shout and the faithful rising up to meet the Lord in the air. This is a different picture. Secondly, in the book of Acts, we are told when the disciples are looking up into heaven where Jesus just ascended, the angel tells them, why, why are you staring up into the sky? This Jesus, he will come in the same way you saw him go. 
Now, what's interesting about that is Jesus did not leave sitting on a white horse. Here, the emphasis is, behold, a white horse. And then a detail about the one sitting on it called faithful and true. But John doesn't say, and I'm being redundant at this point, but then I saw heaven open and behold, Jesus, he says, behold, a white horse. So the symbol here is this white horse. And we see this symbol earlier in the book of Revelation, the symbol of the white horse and what it represents. Listen. Now I watched the Lamb open. This is chapter 6 of Revelation. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice of thunder, Come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now nearly universally, regardless of who people believe the figure is, the white horse is a representative of that which conquers. And John explicitly says that in chapter 6. The white horse and the rider was given a bow and a crown, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And so this white horse in chapter 6 and the rider is one who is on conquest. That is the goal, that is the point, that is the picture of this white horse, is conquest. So when we get to chapter 19 and we read about heaven opening and the emphasis is on a white horse john's not using the same image of a white horse without a good reason he's calling our minds to attention that this image of this white horse is heaven open and behold a conqueror one who is on conquest and then he describes jesus christ who is sitting on the white horse and he's called faithful and true. And notice, in righteousness he judges and makes war. There's conquest, judgment and war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. And he has his name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. So now we have this explicit reference to the name of Jesus Christ. Word of God. And we know from Hebrews that the word of God is the gospel, right? The word of God is the good news that of Jesus Christ, of his life, of his death, of his resurrection. This is the principal good news that Jesus himself preached. And this is the principal good news of his person that manifests itself in the world through the testimony of the Christian church. And so as we're reading this, it says that the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen white and pure were following him on white horses so you have the white horse as heaven opens and then you have the armies of heaven following him on white horses so you have jesus on conquest and you have the saints and armies of heaven in conquest with jesus following on these white horses but the interesting part, which I think is very fascinating, is it says they were arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. Just a few verses earlier, this is verse 14, in verse 8, it says, And it was granted her, talking about the bride of Christ, the Christian church, it says it was granted her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure. And then we get a definition of what this linen is. The linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. 
That's what it says. Verse 8, It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So when we get to verse 14 and we see the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, following on white horses, basically what this verse says is the armies of heaven, the righteous deeds of the saints, are on conquest. And maybe inversing that a little bit, the conquest of the saints is through the righteous deeds that they do for the sake of the gospel. Verse 15, from his mouth, talking about Jesus, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Now again, the sharp sword coming out of the mouth and his name being the word of God. It says he will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. Now, the beautiful thing about this passage is it calls our mind to Hebrews, where Hebrews talks about the word of God being like a sharp, double-edged sword, right? And in that context, it's speaking about the word spoken, the the God-breathed, theonastos, word of God. And so the beauty of this passage is, is, again, We don't want to be confused. This is not a picture of the second coming. I'm absolutely convinced of that. And I think the the hermeneutical jumps you have to make to all of a sudden make it about that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Heaven opens and there's a white horse and there's an army following Jesus. This is not at all anywhere else in scripture um, a depiction of what will take place at the second coming. At the second coming, the dead in Christ will be raised. At the second coming, Christ will descend from heaven with a shout. And the the conquest of Christ is taking place right now as he reigns in heaven. This is a picture. Heaven opens. This is John seeing a picture into heaven. And I think the language, this is my own speculation here, but the language of heaven being opened to me calls to mind the idea of the tearing of the veil in the temple. This kind of fissure and fracture between heaven and earth that was had to be maintained within the old covenant, has now been ripped apart. And now heaven and earth are once again not at odds with one another through the redemption of Jesus Christ. And so that is why the gospel can go forth. That is why the deeds of the saints can go forth. That is why the nations can be conquered. Because heaven has been opened. Um, But regardless, John is looking and he's seeing heaven opened. He's not seeing Christ descending from heaven to earth. And there's nothing in this entire passage that indicates that Christ is coming down, descending to earth. We just see that he is conquering um, with the righteous deeds of the saints. And so what's so beautiful about this passage is it gives us a picture, it gives us an indication of what we can expect from Jesus Christ through this age and our role that we are playing in this age. Now, some people might want to know, Jonah, you're a preterist. At least that's how you understand the book of Revelation. And actually, the side point really quick. I get a little bit concerned with uh, the title preterist. And I've become more and more cautious about using it myself. Because if you're using it as like a theological position, I am a preterist. Um, I think you're kind of missing the point of preterism, right? Preterism is a hermeneutical, exegetical method 
for understanding certain scriptures. Preterism is a theological system by which you understand the scripture. And so I'm not a preterist because I do not have a theological system built on preterism through which I understand scripture. But I will utilize the hermeneutic tool of preterism to help me understand certain biblical texts. Just an important clarification that I think, um, yeah. Anyways, getting back to the text though, um, as a preterist, as a preteristic reader of scripture, um, as somebody who implores the use of preterism, maybe that's a better way to say it, some people might want to know how I understand Revelation 19 is having to do with the future age or the current age that we're living in between the two advents of Jesus Christ um, when I understand the majority of Revelation to be about the defeat and destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Well, the real reason that I understand this is because chapter 19 basically, chapter 18 ends with the, the judgment and the fall of Jerusalem. And chapter 19 opens up with the rejoicing over this fall. And so we see in heaven, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. He judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So now this is a looking back at what has just occurred. And verse 11 now opens up to the gospel age, the fruit of the gospel being poured out, the fruit of the gospel going forth. And so in, in a real sense, I do think that this is, this is a picture of the millennium, which is then recapitulated again in, in chapter 20, followed by the great white throne judgment. Um, and some will say, well, what about the beast and the false prophet? Um, who are thrown into the lake of fire um, after this vision in Revelation 19. And I would simply point out that I think the beast and the false prophet are, are ultimately typological pictures of the enemies of God, the religious enemies of God, the secular enemies of God. And so there is an idealistic um, sense in which the text can and should be understood. We can understand the primary meaning of the beast and the false prophet as being located in the first century. But I think we also need to recognize that at the end of time, at the end of history, there is a very real sense in which the beast and the false prophet in their various manifestations throughout history will climactically and in their entirety be destroyed. And I think that's why we see them being defeated through being thrown into the lake of fire, because this is depicting that there is a final end for that which opposes Christ. There is a final end for the antichrists of the world. Um, and so that's basically how I would reconcile that. But, but moreover, what I want to point out here is that this picture of Jesus Christ on a white horse, followed by saints on white horses, ruling the nations with a rod of iron, is a tangible picture of what we are seeing today. And we need to not lose sight of the fact that this is what's happening. When Roe v. Wade was overturned, the chain around Satan was tightened slightly more. When a Christian is baptized and brought into the covenant people of God, the chain around Satan is tightened a little bit more. The binding of the devil that he might not deceive the nations 
happens through the white horse who conquers. And we, united to that white horse, are seated on white horses as well. And we, through the power of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, are riding out into the world to conquer the nations. This is our marching orders. Matthew 28. Jesus says, Go therefore and disciple all the nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey all that he has commanded us. And he says this because he has authority in heaven and on earth. All authority. All of it. And this is the picture that we're given here. One on a white horse. The one who's faithful and true. And the armies of heaven who follow him. I love this. I love this picture. Because one of the... I'm so, <laughs> I'm a little all over the place right now. But, but this, this is a really important key. One of the critiques that I hear most often against post-millennialism is that it takes the job away from Jesus Christ to build his kingdom, to establish his kingdom, and basically says, hey, the church can do it. We don't need Jesus. We don't need Jesus to, to fix things on earth. We can do it ourselves. That's one of the most common critiques. I mean, if you literally go right now and type in post-millennialism on Google and click one of the first links from uh, uh, Got Questions or Got Answers, whatever that, I think it's Got Questions, yeah, got questions. You click on that. That's basically what they give. The, 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 they basically lay out postmillennialism. They misrepresent it. And then they say, and the problem with postmillennialism is that it believes that the church's job is to bring the kingdom. And that's not Jesus' job. Nowhere in scripture does it teach that the church brings the kingdom without Jesus. And this is why this picture is so fundamental. Because notice what it says about the armies of heaven in verse 14. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him. They were following him. So in other words, the head of the church is Jesus Christ. And as the head indwelling us, we follow him on his conquest. So the conquering of the world, which happens through the church, is really the conquest of Jesus Christ that we are enabled through the power of the Spirit to follow him in. This is not something we're doing in our own power. This is not something we are doing in our own strength. This is not something that we are doing apart from the following and submitting to Jesus Christ. Because all of these enemies that he says he will submit under his feet include us, brothers and sisters. At one point, you and I were enemies of God. That's what scripture describes us as. At one point, we were enemies of God, alienated from him. And yet by the power of his grace, his mercy, his love, his kindness, he grafted us in to union with his son. And it is through this union that we are not just submitted under the feet of Jesus Christ, enemies put away, but we are raised up to newness of life that we might follow him to help him complete the task of submitting and conquering more and more and more enemies. And so really, I'm going to start to wrap things up here. Really, the beauty of the gospel the beauty of the trajectory of the world is that when we look out at the various enemies, 
All we need to do is look back and see all the enemies that Christ has submitted and then look in the future and say, you guys have nothing on the gospel. You have nothing. And so I'm sitting here with absolute confidence, with absolute assurance, and I hope you are too. Abortion will end. Abortion will end globally. LGBTQ will end globally. These things will be submitted under the feet of Jesus Christ. For the one who rides on the white horse, his name is faithful and true. And as Isaiah tells us, he will not rest until he has established justice on the earth. Think about that. Revel in the comfort and the beauty of that statement. Jesus will not rest until he has established justice on the earth. Well, I look around and I see a lot of injustice, a lot of things that are wrong, a lot of enemies that need to be submitted. And yet we can have confidence that these things, with infallibility even, will be brought under the feet of Jesus Christ. We can say that infallibly because the scriptures say that. One of my favorite passages regarding this, some are going to go, okay, Jonah, 1 Corinthians 15. Well, love that passage, but no, that's not the one. It's in Hebrews. And it's just a very good reminder that what we see temporally with our eyes is not an indication of what is actually true, what is actually taking place. Let me find it here. I didn't have this prepared, so here we go. It says in verse 8 of chapter 2, now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Now, I love this passage so much because we see, first, there's an acknowledgement that everything has been put in subjection to him. And because it has, nothing is outside of his control. And yet there's the acknowledgement that at the present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But what doesn't follow is because we don't see it, it doesn't mean that it is in subjection to him, right? And I think sometimes, even as post-millennialists, we can get in this bad habit of thinking, these enemies of Christ that still exist, these are still things that Christ has to you know, wrangle in, they still don't belong to him. They're, they're still not subjected to him. But the reality is the temporal reality that we see, that there's still injustice and evil and things in the world that need to be subdued, does not change the fact that everything is in the control of Jesus Christ and nothing has been left outside of his control. So abortion will be ended in his sovereign timing. Roe v. Wade was overturned exactly when it needed to be overturned, exactly when God in his sovereignty decided that it would be. And we as Christians rejoice, our labors, all, all, all the time that I know so many of my brothers and sisters, way more than me, have spent fighting this grave evil. And the fruit of that labor paid off in God's time. So we need to remember we're operating, we, we need to stop trying to operate in man's timeline 
and operate in God's timeline with an unwavering certainty of what he will accomplish through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is king. He reigns. He rules. Nothing can stop that. Nothing will stop that. And all things will one day be visibly submitted to Jesus Christ. So when you look at the enemies and they mock, and you look at the enemies and they tell you that it's only a matter of time until Christianity is irrelevant, just smile, shake your head. The scripture says, shake the dust off your feet, move on. It will be submitted. We don't need to fight and have an ego war with people on who's right. We know and we know with infallible certainty because the word of God tells us. So have faith, brothers and sisters, and recognize that as we follow Jesus on the white horses and follow him in our deeds of righteousness, that we are following the one whose name is faithful and true. And the one who is faithful and the one who is true in the ultimate sense, the absolute sense that is meant by that text, he will never lead us astray and he will never fail to lead us into all truth. Rest in that and have a good rest of your day. God bless.